Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There is another host that is joining me today, Daniel Sun. Ayo. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say happy early Christmas Eve or Christmas, whenever you're listening to this. And also, I want to say if you want to support the show, then we have a few announcements that we're going to make real quick. So please just take a minute or two, listen to them, because we got some uh, important announcements regarding YouTube, Spotify, and upcoming live streams on Twitch and stuff like that. Now, if you want to support the show, there's a few ways that you can do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 85 extra Patreon episodes which is over 120 extra hours of listening pleasure. To see the full list of Patreon episodes, go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the Patreon Episodes tab. There, you will see an entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is a Theories Thursday exclusive. In that episode, we talk about predictions for 2022, the disappearance of the third richest man in the world, a monument where hundreds of people were sacrificed at, and a NASA image that shows a crashed UFO on Mars. So you get access to that episode, as well as all of the others, for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or Spotify, which, by the way, Spotify just started allowing podcasts to be rated. So you can click on our podcast on Spotify after you download the app. And I think you have to listen to at least 30 seconds of one episode. And then it will allow you to go back to our homepage on, on the Spotify app. And it will open up a little section for you to click it and rate it how many stars you ever want to rate it. So, hey, if you want to, give us a rating. It really helps us out and sticks it to all the other freaking, uh, you know, podcasts out there. So there you go. It helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressured to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are to enjoy the show. Also, one last thing. We have started uh, live streaming on Twitch every now and then. We'll announce it whenever we do. And Twitch is just a program for people to go on and, and watch uh, other individuals live stream, mainly people playing video games. But uh, we don't do that. We just go on there and turn on our webcams and we talk about certain things. Yeah, they have a podcast section as well. So that's kind of what I believe we are under when we live stream. So you can go to twitch.tv forward slash theories of the third kind. And that is where our Twitch account is at. And it's free to watch other people stream, by the way, if you have never been on Twitch before. And we'll make an announcement on social media whenever we do some live streams. I think we're going to have one scheduled sometime around New Year's that we're going to be doing a live stream and giveaway and stuff like that on. So if you want to check that out, just keep your eyes peeled on Instagram, Facebook, or any of our other social medias, and we'll make announcements there. Also, we have started a YouTube channel where we post our Twitch live streams over to. So if you go to theoriesofthethirdkind.com, in the upper header section, there'll be a button for YouTube. You click it, and it will take you to our YouTube channel. And there we have our video from last week's live Q&A live stream. So you can check that out. But if you do go to YouTube and you just search up Theories of the Third Kind, you're not going to find us because that Theories of the Third Kind channel is not ours. There's two of them. There's ours and then there's somebody else's that is not ours. So there you go. Just a FYI. And that's the end of the announcements. All right. So today's episode is a Theories Thursday. All right, so how a Theories Thursday usually goes is that me and Dan each pick out a topic and we don't tell each other about what the topic is. We research it and then we talk about it. We do have a mini topic at the end of the show, which is about Nipple Man, 
which I know is kind of odd, but it'll all make sense at the end of the show. Okay, so to figure out who's going first, actually, you know what? It's probably best that you go first, Dan. Since your topic is shorter and mine's quite a bit longer, do you want to go first? Yeah, I can go first. All right, well, let's hear what your topic's about. All right, so I figured I'd go with the Christmas theme since last year I believe I went with Santa Claus and I guess how he came to be or where he originated from. Okay. And like the Christmas tree and all that stuff with the testicles as the ornaments. On the oh, tree. yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, yeah. This one kind of starts off a little bad as well. Yeah, mine's not anything Christmas related and it's horrible. Well, it's not too bad. It's just pretty gruesome. But anyways, okay, let's go on to your Christmas theme theories. So these days, you know, when you hear elves, what's the number one thing you think of? Elves that work with Santa. Exactly. Or a second one is what be like the Keebler elves that make the cookies and crackers or whatever. I think of like elves, like the little elves that stalk people in uh, the third world countries. You ever see those videos? I've seen the gnome ones. The Dindays or Dwindays or something like that. Well, never mind. I mean, Sorry. no. Continue. That actually kind of describes part of some of the elves that I talk about. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like you said, in third world countries, there's many collective cultures that share common tales of elves, but the original root that I found come from the northern Germanic people, particularly those in Scandinavia. Originally, elves were referred to as Asselfar, and then there's the Hudafolk, means hidden folk, which they were not associated to any deities or formal theology. Like I said, various visions of them derive from many different folklore, which include magical creatures such as fairies, nature spirits, you know, creatures of that sort, little mystical beings. Now, I do go into a couple different lores, not real in-depth, but just, you know, tip of the iceberg type stuff. Then I go into a little bit on how they connect to Santa, and then the couple little elves that I supposedly work for Santa, which I never knew that there were elves that actually worked for Santa that had names. Oh, I didn't either. Yeah. Okay. So the first elves I'm going to talk about are the ones from Norse mythology. These ones, they were not very happy and chirpy, you know, little workshop elves that uh, Santa has now. These Norse elves were pretty indifferent toward humans. And then some of them were actually separated by light and dark. So I guess you could say like good and bad. Oh. And the best way to describe it, how they lived, is using Harry Potter, right? No. You're telling me you don't know Dobby. Uh, was Dobby kind of like Schmeagol? Yeah, he was the elf in Harry Potter. I've seen the first Harry Potter. Oh, I won't say any more, then I won't spoil the rest. All right. But uh, in the movies, these elves occupy homes, and if the humans behaved didn't gossip or lie, they made their so-called nice list to which then they would actually protect like their livestock, the home, and possibly even leave little presents behind. Wait, hold on. So these things lived in the home with these individuals? Yeah. Kind of like spied on them? From what some of the things I've read, yes, kind of. They were pretty much, uh, like further on, they were like spies for Santa. Okay. Make sure the people are being good and all that stuff. And then, uh... Some ancient poems place them side by side with the Norse gods, or sometimes they go by another word called uh, Vanir, V-A-N-I-R. Probably said that wrong, but it's like a group of gods associated with fertility. But then, of course, some, peop some people think that these elves were a godly race of their own because they all had like magical powers and stuff. All right. Now, there was a professor in Iceland, professor of folklore. His name was Terry Gunnell. And like he made a couple statements. He's like, they look like us. They live like us, at least in the older materials. And probably nowadays, if they're living anywhere, they're living between floors and apartments. Oh, Jesus Christ. So they're living, like, I guess, you know, from apartment to apartment, that little area in between. So if you live in an apartment and you got somebody living above you, it's not the actual people walking on the floors. It's the little elves. Yeah, they're spying on you. They're making sure you're, you know, being good for Christmas so they can tell Santa if you're on the naughty or nice list. Okay. So when you beat on the ceiling. thought you were going to beat something else. Never mind. <laughs> God, you're nasty. <laughs> but yeah. Then the story of elves kind of like evolve as we progress through history. 
like the medieval Europeans saw elves as dark and dangerous and actually linked them to demons. Uh-oh. Which in the old English tale of Beowulf, which I'm pretty sure you read Beowulf in school. Yes. Elves got mentioned as an evil race that descended from Cain, you know, the biblical guy, the son of Adam and Eve that murdered his brother. Yep. Yeah, the quote is, Of Cain awoke all that woeful breed, Etons and elves and evil spirits, as well as the giants that warred with God. So, you know, you have the religious references revealing the clash and melding of folk beliefs, and new religion, as Christianity, you know, started to creep into Europe. So, elves were clashing against God. Uh-oh. Which is really interesting, which I never honestly, as I read the Bible before, I don't ever remember reading that. Neither do I, but I have a bad memory. Yeah. So like I said, many different tales throughout time, elves alternate from good and bad. They could be helpful. From what I read, like in uh, German folklore, they actually kind of help during childbirth, during like a difficult labor. How do they help? What, do they hold the legs up? I assume that. They crawl in and pull the baby out. <laughs> it's disgusting. I mean, hey, that could be part of it because, you know, like I said, they alternate from good and bad. Depending on what side they feel like, you know, they're, I guess, wanting to be good or bad. Good, they can help you during the difficult labor. But then if they're bad, they'll help you. But then they steal the baby away and they replace it with what they call it is a changeling. What's a changeling again? They're little creatures that can actually transform into a human. Okay. Then, of course, some of these elves, German elves, would actually cause nightmares, which they believe actually connect to people having sleep paralysis. So sometimes when you're having sleep paralysis, it's probably these elves. And, of course, like I said, alternating from good, good and bad, there were good, you know, elves that, of course, protected the homes like the ones earlier. But mostly these ones seemed to be bad because they did a lot, whole lot of the whole nightmare and sleep paralysis, but also giving people the hiccups. And making their milk taste sour. These people sound like a bunch of assholes. They're a bunch of pranksters, pretty much. Is the little elf on the shelf created after these elves? I wouldn't say 100% that they are, but... It sounds similar. Connected to them. Yeah, they do a lot, all these pranks. And they say in the German folklore that to stop them from doing these pranks on you, you leave a bowl of porridge outside your door. And that supposedly stops them. Either I guess they eat it or it drives them away. Now, then we move a little bit further into history. Then you got William Shakespeare's time where elves were not as malevolent in his poems as they were, you know, in history with like the German elves and all that stuff. They actually start to become more good than bad. So in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream that was written in 1590s had an elf-like figure named Puck who was more of a jokester or trickster, which he never really did anything too evil, it seemed. And like I said, as history progressed, they were losing that evil side of them, their evil intent. The way the Thanksgiving tradition started in the 1800s. That's when the Christmas traditions actually started to kick in. Elves became linked with Santa Claus because of a poem that was written in 1823 called A Visit from St. Nicholas, which is now known today as The Night Before Christmas. Oh, the more you know. Which, in that poem, it actually refers Santa Claus as the jolly old elf. So he's actually an elf himself. So he's possibly like the... Head elf. Yeah. Okay. And that's actually, I believe, how the link between Santa and elves actually started, was because of that poem. Which, more and more stories and poems were written portraying them as good creatures and not the mean bad ones. Especially in the 19th century... A number of renowned writers like Abraham Victor Rydeberg, which I've never heard of him, but, you know, he's just one of the writers, wrote about these creatures in his work, only portraying them as the helpers of Santa Claus and not the troublesome tricksters they were known to be. This portrayal of elves played a huge instrumental role in them being called Christmas elves and not just elves. One of the first appearances of the phrase Christmas elf in literature was found in American poet and novelist Louisa May Alcott's unpublished 1850 book called Christmas Elves. Then, of course, you know, films started to happen in the like, 1930s, which uh, there was a movie called Santa's Workshop, which portrayed elves as, you know, Santa's helpers, you know, these good elves. And then there's, you know, I'm pretty sure there's a couple more movies, but then you got the famous one that everyone seems to like with Will Ferrell. Yeah, Buddy the Elf. Buddy the Elf. And that came out in 2003. 
which Will Ferrell is part of the Illuminati, but you didn't hear that from me. He's something. Honestly, that right there is how elves, you know, got linked to Christmas and how they started getting betrayed as good elves. Not much to it, really. I mean, there's more that you can go into, like, the folklore of it, but that's pretty much the story on them. Okay. Now, I did do some more research on it on, like, you know, why they're Santa's elves and stuff, and I did find out that there's a list of duties that these Christmas elves have to do. Like, they design the toys and make the toys, then they got to maintain Santa's sleigh and all that stuff, which, when I read into that, people were talking about how many elves truly work under Santa? Now, one of the more popular answers is it's unknown. He has like many. Then another answer said 13, which I'm just like, that's such an odd number. Well, Snow White and the uh, Seven Dwarves, ain't it? Yeah. Never mind. I'm off. But then the next one was this, uh, he had six elves that worked or worked under him, and they actually had names and the duties that they did. So, I'm going to read you off the six elves and what their duties were. Okay. Thought it was kind of funny. First, you got Alabaster Snowball, which he is in charge of the naughty and nice list. So he's the elf that's probably spying on everybody, or at least the head elf and doing that. Second, you got Pepper Minstick, and she's the elf that is responsible for guarding the secret village of Santa, ensuring that it remains hidden. So she's like the military of the elf village. <laughs> then you got uh, the third one is Sugar Plum Mary, also known as Merry Christmas, and she's the one that's in charge of all the sweets that Santa delivers to the children of the world. Fourth is Bushy Evergreen, which is the proud creator of the toy-making machine, which makes all the toys that is delivered to children all over the world. Then the fifth one is such a weird name, but it kind of fits in with uh, Norse mythology because it says Norse. His name is Wu Norse Opensleigh. What does he keep up with the sleigh? He is actually the architect and maintainer of Santa's sleigh, and the caretaker of the reindeer. We need to hire him for our Montauk chairs. Right? And then the sixth and the final elf is Shinny Upatree. It's either Upatree or Upatree. One of them. And he's believed to be Santa's oldest friend, as well as a co-founder of the Hidden Village, where Santa and all, the, all of the elves live. With Mrs. Claus as well. Which, I mean, it's interesting. I didn't know there was so much to it. Well, they gotta have a good backstory, you know what I mean? Yeah. The corporation's gotta create a good backstory to push people to uh, buy more products. Right. And then, you know, that jolly old Santa that you see, like that's drawn all over the world now. Yeah. You know, he, that one was actually created by Coca-Cola. Yep. As advertising. But now I will throw in this last little knowledge nuggy. As I was searching through this stuff, I did find uh, an old German folklore about Santa used to being a monster and demon or monster or demon, who would slither down chimneys and kill and eat children or stuff them in the sack to eat later. That sounds like Krumpus. He only changed his ways when a holy man caught up to him and forced him to make amends and start delivering gifts to children instead. The holy man made the demon do this every year, and in time, the demon recruited elves to help him carry out his annual gift giving, which, after all that time, he became Santa Claus. So Santa was down with the adrenochrome and stuff like that. Exactly. All right, but he quit doing that. Yeah, the, the holy man just kept on and just like, you better do right, you better do right. All right. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. It wasn't as like in-depth, but you know, it was pretty interesting. Well, I, I enjoyed it. It's always good knowing how things started and what, where they originated from and how they got to where they are now. Santa comes from like a dark place. Oh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's a good Christmas theme, too, you know? Now she's going to get only more gruesome from your theory that's coming up, right? <laughs> yeah, so if you have kids that are listening, have them stop right now. I'm joking, but yeah, it, it gets pretty rough. I probably already ruined Christmas for them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we go into my theory, we're going to take a quick break. It's only going to be 60 seconds. We'll be right back. Stick around. You want to hear this next theory. Be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, welcome back. So... 
Dan, thank you for your theory. You're welcome. I guess we're going to move towards my theory for this Thursday. And uh, it's one of the strangest murder mysteries that I have ever come across. I originally was going to go with a different story. And I actually had the entire thing written up and everything ready to go. And I was researching many theories. And I came across this one. And I said, I have to go with this story. I can't go with the other one. Because this one's way better. All right, so this story revolves around a woman named Cynthia Elizabeth Hack. So Cynthia actually went by Cindy, by the way, and that's what we're going to refer to her from now on as. So she was born in 1945 in Canada, and she was raised there the majority of her life, and she had a pretty normal childhood. She ended up graduating high school, and only one year later, at the age of 19, she met a psychiatrist named Dr. Roy Makepeace. Now, they ended up falling in love and ended up getting married. And just a little side note, this Dr. Roy was 18 years older than her. So he was 37 at the time, and she was 19. So yeah, just a little knowledge nugget for you. He was 37, she was 19. Eh, kind of pushing it there, you know. Anyways, no judgment for me, moving forward. So after the two got married, Cindy ended up enrolling in a nursing school, and in 1966, at the age of 21, she graduated from nursing school and became a qualified registered nurse. So shortly after that, she ended up becoming an administrator for a preschool for children with behavioral and emotional issues. So she continued to work there as well as being a nurse. And uh, just a little side note, Cindy and Dr. Roy, her husband, they never had any children of their own. I just wanted to throw that in there. All right, so let's fast forward to 1982. Cindy at the time was 37 years old, and Roy was 55 years old. Their marriage wasn't doing so great, and Cindy ended up filing for divorce. Now, four months, four months after filing for divorce is when some strange things started occurring. Cindy started receiving strange phone calls, and she actually went to her parents and started telling them about that. She said, hey, these phone calls I'm receiving, they're just really odd. Sometimes there would be a voice that is just like whispering, like, hey, what are you doing? And other times it would be like nothing but silence and she said that on random occasions, there would be like an odd sound that would change, but that one would rarely happen. So shortly after telling her parents about these weird phone calls, these calls ended up turning from being weird and strange to actually threatening her life. And it was at that point that Sydney reported these threatening calls to the Vancouver Police Department, who began investigating. However, over the next three months, this harassment got worse. On one occasion, Cindy found three dead cats hanging in her garden. Her porch lights had been smashed, and when she tried to call the police about this, she discovered that her telephone lines had been cut. Now, around this time, Sydney also started receiving bizarre notes and letters that were cut from magazines and left on her doorstep, which I do actually have a picture of two of these bizarre notes. And it says, I see you. And it has a cutout of a guy strangling a woman and then him holding up a knife. And then the next note is like cutout letters that says, see Cindy, kill your dead soon, Cindy. Merry Christmas. And then it has a cutout picture of her on that uh, note. So they're very weird. And if you want to go see these notes, you can go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com. You can click on the references tab, scroll all the way down, and there will be the uh, notes that you can see, these letters or notes or whatever. So what year was this again? You said 1982? This was 1982, yep. All right, so needless to say, Sydney started believing that there was someone out there that was trying to scare her and wanted her dead. So again, she reported these incidences to the police. And this just wasn't like one phone call. This was like whenever she found the dead cats and her phone lines cut, she would call the police. Whenever she got these notes, she would call the police. 
because they had an ongoing investigation where they would kind of like write all this stuff down and compile it into their ongoing investigation. So soon after receiving these notes is when the actual physical attacks on Cindy started. So one day in January of 1983, Sydney's friend, Agnes Woodcock, showed up late in the afternoon to just visit Cindy and see what she was doing. Agnes knocked on the front door, but Sydney didn't answer. So Agnes thought it would be a good idea if she just like walked around and opened the back door and went in that way. However, when she started to walk around the back of the house to enter through the back door, she saw Sydney crouched down in the corner of her house like in a shrub, hiding from someone. Agnes, of course, is like, Sydney, what the hell are you doing? Sydney assumed it was somebody else, but when she heard her friend's voice, she was like, oh my God, Agnes, I'm so glad you're here. And when she stood up and walked towards Agnes, Sydney had like a nylon stocking tied around her neck. And she was visibly upset, like her face was red and you could tell she'd been crying. Sydney told Agnes that she had gone into her garage just a few minutes ago to get something. And someone was in her garage, came up from behind her, wrapped a stocking around her neck and started strangling her. She was only able to see the attacker's shoes, which were white sneakers. She wasn't able to get a good look at the attacker. But while she was getting strangled is when Agnes knocked on the door and the attacker heard that, let go of Sydney and ran off in which Sydney assumed that, you know, hey, I need to get away too. So she ran out of the garage and hid thinking that, you know, maybe it was another attacker or something when really it was Agnes. So again, Sydney called the police and gave a report about what happened to her in her garage. Uh, following that, uh, Sydney continued to receive death threats on her doorstep. Not only death threats, but she started receiving multiple orders of raw meat to her home. Random meat would show up at her house. I wish people would do that for me. Right? I'm thinking that's, man, that's like free meal. But then again, though, I mean. She had all that shit going on with her, you know, so she didn't really know. Anyways, um. On one occasion, Sydney arrived home from work and found her dog sitting in the corner of her room with a cord wrapped tightly around her neck as if somebody was trying to strangle her dog. But her dog was still alive, but it was like visibly shaken and hurt, so she had to take it to the vet. And she again called the police and reported, to the, reported this to them. And it was at this point that the police started to kind of get tired of her. And they didn't really believe her stories and what was going on. And they actually told her that they didn't believe her, which is kind of jacked up, you know? Yeah, it is. So Sydney was like, the police don't have my back. All this weird shit's going on with me. I need to move. So she decided to sell her house. She bought a new house far away. Uh, she actually got her car repainted and she changed her last name. And get this. She even hired a private investigator named Ozzy Cobbin to kind of like look over her and figure out who the hell was behind all this. Now, beside tracking down leads and, and all that good stuff, Ozzy had lights installed on the outside of Cindy's house, which were kind of like motion lights, and also gave her a two-way radio with a panic button. So that way, if her phone lines get cut, she could hit the panic button and Ozzy would hear it and rush over to her house. So it was kind of like a safe net, right? Okay. So late one night in 1984, Ozzy actually heard weird noises coming from the two-way radio. And he's like, oh shit, maybe something's wrong with Sydney. So he rushed to her house. He found Sydney lying in her hallway with a knife stabbed through her hand with a note attached to it saying, you are dead, bitch. Sydney was motionless, and Ozzy at first thought, she's dead. But he flipped her over, found a pulse, called 911. The ambulance came and picked her up, took her to the hospital where she regained consciousness. And she was able to tell investigators she was walking around in her home and felt someone randomly put a needle in her arm. And that's the last thing she remembers. She doesn't remember being stabbed or hit or anything like that. The police, of course, were like, 
fed up at that point, and they believed that she staged the attack on herself. And because they believed that, they didn't even bother going to her home and, and taking, like, fingerprints or get the knife as evidence or take the note and try to get fingerprints or anything like that. They just kind of brushed it all off. Ozzy, on the other hand, her private investigator, thought that someone had actually uh, attacked her. Now, even though the police didn't believe Cindy's stories, they are like, hey, we should at least set up a random 24-hour surveillance of a residence, which makes sense, right? But every time the police did these random surveillances, no one would call Cindy, and no notes would be left at her home, and she wouldn't be attacked. So the police kind of used that as more quote-unquote proof that this was all being faked by Sydney. Now keep that in mind, that little section right there, because that plays into my theories. All right, so fast forward to December 11th, 1985. Sydney hadn't been heard from for a while, and people started to get worried. She was actually found semi-conscious, lying in a ditch six miles from her house. She was wearing a man's work boot and glove and suffering from hypothermia. There were cuts and bruises covering her entire body. A black nylon stocking had been tied tightly around her neck, and a needle mark was found in her arm, just kind of like her previous attack. But she had no memory of what happened. She was taken to the hospital. Police were called again, and they took down the report. But again, they were like, f***ing Sydney, back at it again. So it was after this attack that Sydney asked her friend Agnes, hey, can I come stay with you and your husband Tom in your home? Because I, I feel like I'm going to get killed. Agnes and Tom agreed, and Sydney moved in. Now, shortly after moving in, something very strange occurred. Late one night, Sydney came running up the stairs to Tom and Agnes's room. She bust open through the door and shouted that she'd heard a noise downstairs in the basement. Now, Tom said, hey, I did too because I heard that strange noise as well. It sounded kind of like a loud thump, and it happened like a minute or so ago. So he was like, I'll go check it out. He got up and walked downstairs to his basement to investigate. Now, upon arriving there, he discovered that his basement was up in flames. That bitch was on fire. Agnes ran to the phone to call the fire department, but the phone lines had been cut. So Tom was like, shit, we need to get a hold of the fire department. I'm going to run outside and over to the next door neighbor's house to call the fire department. As he ran out his front door, he saw a man standing on the curb near his house. Tom didn't recognize him, but at that moment he was kind of like, I just need to use a phone. He ran up to him and he's like, hey, can you call the fire department? My basement's on fire. The man just sat there and stared at Tom for a couple seconds, turned, and started running down the street away from him. <laughs> what the hell? Tom was like, what the hell, man? Ran over to his next door neighbor's house, got them to call the fire department. They ended up coming over as well as the police, and the police started taking down notes and investigating it, and they put out, the fire department put out the fire and everything. But the police didn't believe that somebody else did the fire. They believed that Cindy actually staged it. And Cindy was like, I didn't stage it. Somebody else did. Why would you think I would catch this basement on fire? And then go tell the owners. It makes zero sense. It was at this point that Sydney's doctor was kind of like, I think you may be coming suicidal, so I'm going to commit you to a local psychiatric ward. And she did. She went to a local psychiatric ward, and she stayed there for 10 weeks. And nothing happened during those 10 weeks. Like, she wasn't bothered. She wasn't attacked. No phone calls, no notes, no nothing. Now, shortly after leaving the psychiatric ward, Sydney went to her family and friends and told them that she believed she knew the identity of the individuals that were stalking her and harassing her, that she was going to handle it herself and go after them herself because the police didn't believe her. But that didn't, that didn't end up well for her. So on October 26th, 1988, Sydney came home from work, parked her car in the garage, got out of her car, and was attacked by someone. Sydney was later found unconscious in her car, nude from the waist down. There was a nylon stocking tied around her neck, and her arms and her legs were hogtied behind her with another nylon stocking. Duct tape was found over her mouth, 
and she was like, of course, unconscious. She was taken to the hospital and went into a coma. However, she actually survived. Sydney was interviewed by the police and told them that she didn't see who the attacker was and didn't know how it happened, but she believed that her ex-husband, Dr. Roy, was behind these attacks. You know, the psychiatrist, the guy who she married when she was 19, who she just recently got divorced from, and four months after the divorce is when the phone calls started happening and all this shit started going on. So the police spoke with him. They were like, okay, we need to go talk to him. And he was like, I have nothing to do with this. I don't want her in my life at all. But it's funny you, you come over here and you ask me this because I had somebody call me a day or two ago and leave me a very odd voicemail. Now, this voicemail was a short one, but it was a raspy voice saying, Sydney, dead meat soon. And he played it for the police. And guess what? I actually have that recording. And we're going to take a listen to it right now. So yeah, that was the recording. Does that not sound like a woman woman trying to sound like a man? Yeah. Yeah, it does. So that was weird. And the police kind of was like, that's a little weird. We're going to take a copy of this and we're going to store it as evidence in this case. But nothing really came of it. So Sydney ended up leaving the hospital and went back to living her life. In the spring of 1989, she actually reported to her family and friends that the attacks, phone calls, notes, it all seemed to pretty much stop. And she was feeling better and back to her normal self for the first time in a long time. And her family was like, oh, this is great. You know, you can finally be normal. However, that all changed. A couple months later, on May 25th, 1989, Sydney disappeared. A random fact, uh, but this was six years and seven months after the first threatening phone call she ever got. So this had been going on for over six years. And then she finally disappeared on May 25th, 1989. And she had reported over a hundred harassment reports to the police about what was going on. Over a hundred. And it was reported that the police had spent over a million dollars investigating this case at this point. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Honestly, it sounds like they didn't do any investigating. No. All right. Um, so on this day, on May 25th, 1989, Sydney's car was found in a neighborhood shopping plaza parking lot abandoned. Inside of the trunk were groceries that were just freshly bought and a wrapped gift. Now, these groceries were not bought at that plaza. They were bought elsewhere. Now, there was blood on the driver's side door and items from her wallet were under the car. However, Sydney was nowhere to be found. The police started searching for her, and they didn't find her within the first week. They didn't have no leads and everything. But eventually, two weeks after she had disappeared is when her friends and family got the bad news. Sydney was found dead. Now get this. Her body was discovered in the front yard of an abandoned house in a rather high-trafficked area with a lot of pedestrians and foot travelers. So it initially seemed that she couldn't have been killed when she was first reported missing, right? Like they had to have had her for a little while, killed her, and then dumped her off after those two weeks. But after the autopsy, it showed that she died the day she disappeared. Her body showed numerous wounds, including an injection mark in her arm, which later uh, was determined to be an insanely high dose of morphine that was given to her. She was found to have both her hands and feet tied behind her body, pretty much hogtied. Around her neck was the signature black nylon, and that was used to strangle her. And uh, what was missing from the scene was the needle that was used to administer the morphine. They couldn't find that anywhere. So the police started their investigation. It didn't last long, though, however. Uh, because they quickly concluded that, get this, Sydney had injected herself at some other location with the morphine, threw away the needle, 
walked a mile and a half to the scene where she was at, where she tied her hands and feet behind her after strangling herself. And uh, the official cause of death was morphine overdose, and the Royal Canadian Police claimed it as a suicide. Now, there is a lot more to this story. Stick around because I've got so much more information about it. We're going to take another quick break. It's our last one. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Don't go anywhere. All right. Welcome back. Okay. So police ruled it a suicide. Official cause was death from morphine, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the amount of morphine that she had injected herself with, she would have not been able to walk a mile and a half to the scene where she was at or even function. She would have immediately died from overdose. Her private investigator, Ozzy, believes that she was actually taken, killed elsewhere, and then her body was dumped shortly before it was discovered. Now, not only that, but Ozzy and her parents believe that the police weren't interested in finding who actually did this, but rather they were more interested in trying to paint her as a crazy person who was doing all of this for attention and that she had a mental illness, even though she was an administrator at a preschool for children with mental illnesses and behavioral issues. So years following her death, uh, both Sydney's parents had since passed away and they never really knew what happened to their daughter besides her dying, right? Sydney has a sister named Melanie who has written a book and actually runs a website dedicated to finding her sister's killer. And that is the story of Sydney Hack's murder. That's such a crazy story. Oh, it gets crazier, Dan. It sounds like the police just gaslighted the shit out of her. Yeah, it gets crazier when you really start sinking your teeth into this. Like I did, I thought that was the end of the story right there. I thought that alone was crazy enough. But then I started to look into theories. Good theories? Yes. All right. So we're going to hop into theories now. And a couple of the theories are the ones that you would automatically think. Like she made it up for attention and she had a mental illness, right? That's one of the theories. Another theory is that she was truly being stalked. And what drove her crazy was that no one believed her, that she was actually being stalked, and the police didn't believe her. Her family kind of believed her, but they thought she was doing it out of attention, and it drove her crazy, and that her ex-husband, Dr. Roy, was actually the one doing it all. Now, those are some theories, but there's something that many people don't mention that I think fits this perfectly. So when Sydney's very first time that she called the police, the first police officer to ever arrive and talk to her was a police officer named Pat McBride. Now, Pat was super supportive of her situation. And get this shit, the two of them actually became romantically involved. And they actually moved in together for a brief period while Pat was investigating the case, and then after a month of them being together, Sydney randomly broke up with him and kicked him out. Oh. So this leads me to my theory. What if he was the one doing it? I mean, he would know when the police were doing the surveillance on her, right? Yeah. So he wouldn't leave the notes and all that stuff. What if he was stalking her from the beginning? Okay. He set all of this up. He's the one who did the phone calls. Like he had, he had seen her on the streets, found out who she was, did the phone calls knowing that she would call the police and he was in the area so he could be the first to respond, kind of like a stalker to win over his prey. It would give him his chance to actually meet her, be supportive, and then try to get with her, which is what he did. But then she ends up breaking it off with him because during that month that they were together, None of this shit happened. Mm. Now, I do have some more stuff to add to that theory. Okay. A couple of years after Sydney's death, Pat McBride was actually convicted on two counts of sexually assaulting women. And uh, they actually interviewed him about Sydney's death, but he was cleared of any involvement. See, I was going to say that it has to be the police involved in it somehow. Yeah. 
the way everything happened and the cops were never able to find anything. It stopped when the cops were actually watching her. Then when she went to the psych ward, nothing happened. So I got a couple more strange facts and findings I want to add to this that could lead into theories. All right. Between 1978 to 1981, a woman named Ruth Finley claimed that she was threatened, stalked, and harassed for years. She was eventually brutally attacked and admitted to the St. Joseph Medical Center, where three knife wounds, one of them which was nearly fatal after it punctured her kidneys. She was kept in the hospital for nine days and told police that a man had attacked her in a local mall parking lot. However, what makes this strange is that whenever she was being harassed, she would call the police, they would put her house under surveillance, and everything would stop. However, whenever they would leave, it would all, it would all start back up again. That was from 1978 to 1981. Sydney's harassment started in 1982 to 1989. They sort of kind of line up. Um, there is something else that is strange that I came across. And it's something short, and it's going to be the end of my theory after this. All right. So I started doing some digging on some forms. And a person made a weird connection about an international ring of psychiatrists who kind of act as the Illuminati that have an island that has sex slaves on it. It's like Jeffrey Epstein stuff, and it sounds crazy, but hear me out on this. So there was a report that was done in the early 90s where a local reporter named Mark Edge and Maureen Boyle did a report on a sex slave named Jill Gorham and her ordeal on Gabriella Island. Now, this island is actually one that Sydney had went to on a sailboat trip in the early 1980s, was this Gabriella Island, with Dr. Roy, her husband. And this person ended up writing an email to Melanie Hack about this. And Melanie Hack is Sydney's sister. And Melanie posted this email and it said, Hello, Melanie. I discovered on Sunday that you're writing a book about your sister's mysterious death. I hope you discovered a truth about what happened to her. I believe that during the summer of 1981, that Sydney, when she went to her sailboat trip to the Gulf Islands to visit colleagues and friends of her husband Roy, on one of these yacht trips, she discovered a diabolical secret about a member of the psychiatric community in British Columbia which is where they lived. I believed that Roy, Dr. Roy, went to visit his friends who was a fellow psychiatrist who had a home on Gabriella Island. Did Sydney find out something that she was not supposed to? It is important to recognize that Sydney and Roy were members of a psychiatric community in British Columbia, as Dr. Roy was the head of social psychiatric at UBC before he went to work at BC Hydro. I believe the reason Sydney experienced this reign of terror for seven years is because she knew that there was a community in British Columbia who was actively practicing radical psychiatric therapies and abusing their patients as a way to find out how to do mind control. If Sydney had said her tormentor was a psychiatrist, she would have not been believed. She would have been considered delusional or insane. It would have been a huge scandal in the newspapers. The Brotherhood of Silence would have protected a member of the psychiatric community. Over the years, there have been stories, for, uh, for an example, of the sex slave Jill Gorman in the newspapers who have been trying to bring her tormentor into justice. She went and did a report stating that she went to Gabriella Island and suffered from a psychiatric doctor who treated her as a sex slave. Another person named Ann White came forward and claimed that she was a sex slave on Gabriella Island. And this Jill Gorham won a $557,000 civil case against a Dr. James Stewart Thirst. Now, this Dr. Thirst retired from the University of British Columbia in 1987, and he was arrested in 1989 for sexually assaulting four of his patients. Now, get this Dr. James Stewart Thirst was friends with Dr. Roy, and they hung out all the time. So yeah, I mean, maybe there's a theory that Sydney had some information about this 
cabal of psychiatrists that is running like this underground MK Ultra type thing. And Sydney found it out, wanted to expose him. However, they kind of like stalked her and she was subjected to this like evil, sadistic type of like experiment to kind of like shut her up. And they eventually killed her. So that's that theory, which kind of crazy that that Dr. Thirst was connected to Dr. Roy and that they did go to that island, Gabriella Island. So, yeah, that's my theory. I mean, if I had to pick something, I like that last one, you know, Dr. Thirst and Dr. Roy and there being like a psychiatric community doing this like underground MK Ultras type stuff. But I would have to say it was either like Pat McBride or Dr. Roy that was doing this to her. That would be my guess. But overall, the story is insane. It is insane. While you were like doing that, I was like looking up some stuff and I thought I hit a gold mine. But this was literally like a teaser, a Reddit post from nine years ago. The person that posted it said that her or their uncle was Pat McBride. And I'm just like, oh, there's going to be some juicy information. No, nothing, nothing. She's just like, or they're like, forgot to add that my uncle was a suspect. And what a lot of the available reading on the case fails to mention is that years after Cindy turned up dead, my uncle Pat McBride of the Royal Canadian Mountain Mounted Police was stripped of his badge for what I was told were similar attacks or threats of attacks on other women. He's since passed, so I can't ask him about it, though I don't think I would. He always scared me a little. Yeah. So reading that, I'm just like, I mean, the whole time I'm thinking police had something to do with it. My thought is that Roy probably started it. Then Pat got on the case, found out it was Roy, probably confronted Roy, be like, hey, you you know, probably should stop doing this to Cindy or you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. Then, you know, he went back to Cindy. It's like, you know, pretty much playing the hero, got together with her. Then after they broke up, he continued on to make it look like she was just going crazy. So when the police went to interview Roy, because, okay, why wouldn't they go after Roy in the first place? It's ex, it's her ex-husband. It makes sense. Why'd it take so long? Exactly. When they went to go interrogate him he's just like i don't want to have nothing to do with her yeah that makes me think that he was already warned before who left the voicemail though honestly if she had all that morphine in her you could probably convince her to say something like that because well, the way she said so, it was so slow though well she had all the morphine in her when she died well what's all the other times okay so the other times she claimed that she was injected in the arm they couldn't find any track marks or anything she did say that she suspected it was her ex-husband yeah. So she could have been framing him in a way. Yeah. And the weird thing is, though, in this post, it talks about when um, or another post is that when the family went to her place after she died, they cleaned up a whole bunch of dr uh, prescription drugs and they were a bunch of like anxiety medicines. And those medicines, they was it benzodiazepines, whatever. Yeah. Benzos. Yeah. Benzos. Supposedly they can counteract opiates. Mm hmm. Now, I did read that they said that the morphine they found in her system is only suspected. It wasn't confirmed. So they're not sure if it was actually morphine in her system or not. It honestly it just sounds like the whole investigation was screwed from the begin from the get go. Yeah. Which makes me even think more that it was actually probably Pat McBride, considering he uh, got stripped of his badge later on for similar attacks or threats to other women. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think Dr. Roy started it and then eventually he stopped whenever he found out that his ex-wife was now dating a police officer. And then she broke up with him, broke up with Pat, and then Pat pretty much continued it. And then Sydney was thinking it was her ex-husband still, ended up trying to frame him by calling him and leaving a voicemail on the, his phone knowing that the police would go over there. Because he started it and she thought it was probably still him doing still it. Still him, yes. Yep, exactly. It was actually Pat. Boom. Solved it. Case solved. I mean, I know a lot of people, they were saying like she was suffering from multiple personality disorder. I mean. I don't know. I don't think it was that, but it could have played a part in it, though. Mm. It did probably, it probably made her even more paranoid. It's, it seems like the media tried to like portray her as like a crazy person, too. Like the police kind of pushed that narrative and the media went along with it. Yeah. Because they didn't want to be like, hey, you know. We got a murderer out there that we're not aware where he's at or what he's doing. So it's easier just to say she did it herself herself, and she's crazy. That's, that's my theory on it. But it's a very interesting, crazy story. You know, rest in peace, Cindy. 
And I hope her attacker gets brought to justice. So that's my theory for Theory Thursday. A mystery murder. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Ooh. Did make me think of something, though. All right, let's hear it. This, this one's a far reach. So say that she did have morphine in her system. Where was she getting the morphine? Her ex-husband's a doctor. So let's say that she was blackmailing him because she knew it was him from the start. And he didn't want to get in trouble anymore. He already got confronted by the police. So she's just like, I, that police officer, Pat McBride's not going to come after you anymore. But you're going to have to, you know, give me something. Instead of money, drugs. If it was her injecting herself. Yeah, look at all sides here. Yeah, true. But no, I still think it was Pat McBride's ass. Yeah. All right. Um, so that's the end of my theory. I, I've got like a little mini theory that I wanted to talk about before we roll into uh, our On the Scene this week. Dude, I so want to hear this one just because of the name. All right. So this <laughs> mini theory, it kind of connects to this kind of like murder mystery. It's called Nipple Man. So on October 16th, 2003, 54-year-old Colonel Philip Sue left his Texas home and headed to work. Two hours later, he was found dead in his car, and which they kind of ruled him as like a victim of a car crash. The car was caved in on the driver's side, and Philip had suffered major head trauma as a result, and he was killed instantly. Now, this is where it gets weird. Philip, when he was found and they pulled him out, he had a tear in his t-shirt under his fatigues there they could see a six inch vertical gash across his chest above the entrance to that six inch gash were at least five scratch marks which the autopsy report said were consistent with hesitant marks both of his nipples had been removed with surgical precision his fifth digit on his left hand had been amputated, and his left ear had been lacerated all the way down to the bone, and duct tape was found dangling from both of his wrists and on top of his boots. And it was ruled a suicide. So this man, he had looked like he had some parts of him taken away and probably sold on the black market. My thing is, I think that he went somewhere, was tied up with duct tape and tortured. They removed his nipples, they cut across his chest, cut his left ear all the way down to his bone, they cut off his left finger, his fifth digit on his left hand. He ended up breaking free because they found duct tape dangling from both of his wrists and top of his boots. And uh, he ended up trying to drive away, ended up wrecking his car, going really fast, and died in the car wreck. Damn. And he was a colonel. In the army, not in the army, but a colonel in the military. Oh, okay. I can see where the torture comes in now. Yeah. Weird, huh? That's my little mini theory. It's something we can dive deeper into on a later episode. So I thought you were going to bring up the nipple belt. No, not the nipple belt. Not Ed Gein's nipple belt. Weird suicide, but okay. Just like uh, Epstein's. Yeah. All right. Um, so that is the end of the episode today. I guess we'll roll into on the scene, right? Yeah. All right. Well, if you're unfamiliar with what our on the scene is, it is where listeners around the world go out onto the streets and use their phone to interview individuals about current conspiracy happenings. Now, anyone can do this. You just take your phone, record you asking questions to somebody, and then submit that audio file from your phone to our emails which it could either be Aaron at theoriesofthethirdkind.com or you can send it to Dan at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. After you submit those, your on-the-scene will be played, or it will at least be put into queue to play because we play one a week. All right, so this week's on-the-scene is from Peyton, and we're going to play that right now. Hey, we're here at the Fort Worth Zoo in Texas, and I'm here with my buddy Marcus front on the scene. Marcus, conspiracy theory. Are flamingos pink because they eat shrimp? I believe flamingos are pink because they eat shrimp and krill, but I also believe that flamingos did 9-11. I mean, just look at their legs. The, the correlation is just there, you know? Uh. All right, all right, all right. Well, how do you feel about Bigfoot? Is he real? 
Um, I believe Bigfoot's real. I mean, anything's possible. Right. And aliens? Aliens, of course. I mean, where do you think we came from? I mean, just look at us. We're not, we're definitely not from here. Have you experienced anything or been probed? Um, probed? Yeah, probed. Uh, no, I don't believe so. All right. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. Sweet. Thank you for that on the scene. Yes, thank you. Now I'm curious about flamingos and what they had against the towers. You know, it's just in their nature. I've actually been to the Fort Worth Zoo multiple times when I lived in Texas. It's a good zoo. Fort Worth Zoo, Dallas Zoo, the Waco Zoo, Austin Zoo. You never took me there. Yeah, well, maybe soon. We can go. Soon. But thank you, Peyton, for the great on the scene. I loved it. Proud of you. All right, so let's move on to shout-outs. Dan, you want to start or do you want me to start? I can start because I got a, I got a few. All right, so special shout-out goes to, well, special shout-out from Discord goes out to Trayson Zage. I think I said that right. It's uh, a listener's eight-year-old son who loves listening to us, and he actually wants to record part of the intro to our show and send it to us. Nice, that'd be cool. I'm down for that. What's up, Trayson? Proud of you. Merry Christmas, dude. Proud of you. All right. Now, moving on to Facebook. I got a Joe C, Jason S, a Jake B, Chelsea B, then a Cody B, then a Diego B. That's a lot of Bs. Are they all related? No. They're all different last names. Okay. Yeah. Then uh, moving on to emails. Got an email from Kristen B. She said she's been waiting for a shout out. Here's your shout out finally. Sorry about the wait. Then uh, Tyler H, Cooper S, Derek W, Daniel A, Jordan W, Angie Z, Brandon VH, uh, Nick L, and Robert B. And then I have one from Instagram, which is uh, David Guerrero 19. Shout out to you, buddy. Nice. And that's it for my shout outs for this week. All right. So for shout outs on Instagram, we have a lot. And we have to send off a lot of stickers. You have to send us one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got to find out where my stickers are. I think I have them packed away somewhere. We got to get some uh, new album art stickers made. Yeah, we do. All right, we'll get that ordered and send those stickers out. Shouldn't take long. All right, so for shout outs, I want to shout out Slickers. I want to shout out Sierra Dawn, Tanya, Wolf Yakin, Corina de la Garza, Lexi Jane, Brandon, our security guard, Octavius, Rachel Root. Travis, Davey Boy, Eric Mays, Gia, Katie Beth, Chance Lagare, Josh Mack, Abby, Anthony Powers, Tavon, Tyler Hutchins, Yarl Juarez, Ricardo Hurato says, could I get a shutout? No, you can't get a shutout, but you can get a shout out. So there you go. Uh, J.R. Bernarabi, Cuddy Deuce, JT. And let me roll over to my emails and see who I got for shout-outs for emails. Uh, shout-out to Christian Beasley. Actually, Isaac and Christian. Shout-out to you guys. Shout-out to Vincent. And shout-out to Leo. I'm sorry if I missed you on your shout-out. If you for sure want a shout-out, make sure you send the message, like, Tuesday. Because we, we usually record around that time, around Tuesday or Monday. Send it Tuesday or Monday. So it's a fresh message, so I don't have to scroll back like five or six days. And I'll write it down and give you a shout out. Or if you send an email, put in the subject line, shout out. And it'll be easy for me to search up and shout you out. Oh, yeah. Well, you got anything else you want to add to today's episode before we roll it out? I'm going to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Hopefully we get that uh, live stream going and y'all can join us right before the New Year. Yeah. Right before the new year, we'll have a live stream. We'll post up a, a post with the, the exact date and time when we're going to be doing that. We'll have little games, activities, snacks, you know, all that good stuff for everyone to join in and talk and have a good old time. I'll have a new mask. Dan will have a new mask. I'll have a new mask. Coda will have a mask. Coda will have a mask, which is Dan's dog. Which I had to post pictures of him on Instagram. Yeah, you should do that here pretty soon. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us. And again, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. I hope you all have a great holiday and time away from work. And if you're working like me, you can say 
the man, you know, send me a message and say, hey, Aaron, I feel your pain. I'm working on Christmas Eve and Christmas just like you. And I'll say, I feel you. I feel you. I feel you. All right. Well, thank you for your support. You are all amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone. Happy holidays.